Now, we have a very, very special privilege today to have uh, Dr. James Packer in our class with us. And uh, I hope that in these days that he has been on campus, you are getting to know him not simply as a chapel lecturer and scholar, but as a friend, for he is uh, a very, very friendly person and uh, a person that I've come to know and love especially over the last seven years, though as I told you in chapel, my acquaintance with Dr. Packer in the printed page goes back uh, clear to a book that he wrote in 1958, Fundamentalism and the Word of God. And uh, many of his books uh, have had uh, significant impact in my thinking. And I thank the Lord for his contribution in so many, many ways. He has consented today to come and receive questions from you in the area of eschatology. Eschatology is not an area that perhaps most of you have read Dr. Packer on. Uh, his basic uh, contribution, perhaps in books you've read, has been in the area of bibliology, and more recently, perhaps, in pneumatology. Uh, but obviously, he has opinions uh, eschatologically as well. And I think they probably are different from uh, some of ours. And yet we go to the same book. We have a strong confidence in the uh, inspiration, the inerrancy of the autographs of Scripture. And that gives us a solid base for discussing back and forth because we can always come back to the text. Now, in the light of that, I want to not control this discussion. I want to allow you to ask the questions of Dr. Packer that come to your mind. And uh, perhaps I will just start off with a more general area of uh, asking you, Dr. Packer, if you will give to us general thoughts, uh, how you see eschatology and the full spectrum of the scripture and uh, in the light of God's program, his, uh, what he's doing in history, uh, those kinds of things, the more general area, first of all, and then perhaps the students will respond and pick up from that. Okay. I'm happy to accept this assignment and try to give satisfaction in terms of the ground rules that have been laid down. Feel free to toss me any bombs you like. Um, if they go off in my hand, well, that will be an interesting experience for you as well as for me, and perhaps I'll be able to toss them back. There's always that possibility. Um, the first thing I want to say, I think, about eschatology is that the Bible focuses on eschatology. That's a way of saying that the Bible is a forward-looking book from Genesis to Revelation. That's true. There is always a hope there. God is the God of the future, and the people of God at every stage are being taught to embrace that hope, look forward to it, and live in terms of it. And that is one of the ways, one of the ways in which God matches his word to the nature that he's given us because we human beings are hoping animals by our very nature. We live very much in our future. We say, and with deep truth, while there's life, there's hope. The other, uh, the other side of that coin is that if there really is no hope, well, the light goes out in life. People exist, but their lives can hardly be regarded as human anymore. So you would expect that the Bible would lay great stress on hope, and indeed it does. And in expounding Christian eschatology, this is my starting point. And there's a phrase in the New Testament which focuses everything for me, Christ Jesus, our hope. You've got that, I think, at the beginning of either Titus or Second Timothy as part of the greeting. Christ Jesus, our hope. The Christian hope focuses on the return of the Lord and the completion of all that God started in his redemptive grace when Christ came the first time. 
Now, I expect that when we get into discussion, some of you will be wanting me to draw distinctions for which, honestly, I cannot find any scripture basis. Uh, let me say it positively. I think that the Lord returns once, not twice or three times. I think that all the events which are pinpointed as being part of our, uh, as belonging to our hope, being part of it, are all associated with that one return of Christ. It's then that the dead will be raised. It's then that the living will be transformed and this mortal will put on immortality. It's then that the final judgment will take place. The final judgment, by the way, I understand as presented to, to be presented to us in Scripture as meaning. Let me put it. Uh, let me put it this way, because I want you to. Uh, I want you to think about it in this way, as meaning that God then says yes to what man has already chosen. There is nothing arbitrary about the final judgment, nothing even vindictive in any ordinary sense of that word. If men have chosen God in this world, God says yes to that choice and they will have God. They will have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to all eternity. If they've said no to God in this world, God will ratify that decision. And a godless, Christless eternity then becomes theirs. It's an awesome doctrine, but I think it's very important that we construct it in those terms uh, to leave, to, to exclude from the picture, you see, all thought of arbitrariness um, and ferocity on God's part. Uh, I think that in people's minds there's a lot of deep suspicion of the justice of God in judgment, and I want to say everything in the way best calculated to dispel that suspicion. What God does is to give us what we have chosen. There are many scriptures, I think, that make that very plain. Well, all of that is done, and so is the taking down of this cosmos. You know there's a reference in Second Peter 3 to everything being dissolved in what is made to look like almost a nuclear explosion. You know, the elements dissolved in fervent heat, whatever. Um, well, this cosmos will be taken down, in whatever sense it's going to be taken down, and remade um, into the new heavens and the new earth at that time. Um, I see all these things as coalescing in the scripture presentation, and I confess right at the outset, I cannot see the ground for some of the distinctions that some people draw uh, as between the time of some of these events and the time of others. Uh, now, I say that not in order to be contentious, but because I realize that this is the point where your questions are likely to focus, and this is the point where Dr. Redmarker and I would have to keep hugging each other in order to, <coughs> in order to avoid coming hey. to blows. And yeah, well, it's okay, let's do it. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I say this in the hope that it introduces some worthwhile discussion from your standpoint. And having said that, um, I think I need only say one thing more. What God is doing in history focuses on, the centers on, the redemption of the church by Christ Jesus. It's all in Ephesians, as I read Ephesians. Uh, God is building his church. God is bringing his church towards maturity. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, says Paul in Galatians 3, then shall we also appear with him in glory. And that, to my, to my understanding, is the center, the climax, and the supreme achievement of God's work in history. When history comes to an end, that's what happens. And my theodicy is that in retrospect, it's a matter of faith, of course, at the moment, but uh, I think it's well-grounded faith, that then, as we look back, the course of world history, the allowing of sin into God's world in the first instance, and all the eddies of the battle between good and evil, will appear to, to have been justified because glory will have come to God out of what's been happening. 
in a way that glory would not have come to God otherwise. That's a very Augustinian thing to say, but it seems to me that Augustine spoke as wisely on this subject as anyone ever has. Now, I guess that's enough from me. Let's move into dialogue. I will resist asking questions at this point. Uh, and over to you. Okay, Tim. Um, Jim, let's get right to the crux of the matter. How do we eliminate uh, the verse, the reference in uh, Revelation 20 with the uh, thousand years? How do we eliminate that, in your view? We don't eliminate it, we exegete it. <laughs> My question is, is if, if the end comes and a new cosmos or a new world comes about at the first return of Christ, uh, or the only return of Christ, um, and we enter into eternity, how then is the references to time if eternity then is uh, a timeless age? Uh, I think that I detect two questions in what you've said, and they're quite separate. Um, I don't think that it's helpful at all to speak of eternity as a timeless age. I am one of those who thinks that it's much better to explain eternity in terms of endlessness or everlastingness as one of the characteristics of the life of eternity, um, God is everlasting, and our life with him is everlasting. It's the idea, you see, presented in the hymn, you know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Um, the endlessness, to my mind, is the key notion. Timelessness suggests a perfect frozen pose in which nothing happens, either for God or for us, forever. And I want to exclude that idea, for I don't think it's helpful or true in the least. Um, so that's one thing that your question prompts me to say. This, I think, is how we should conceive eternity. It's the life of supreme blessedness going on endlessly. Now, the other question, which I hear you raising, is the question of the exegesis of the millennium passage in Revelation chapter 20. Um, without going into a full-scale defense of the particular way of understanding the visions of Revelation that I think true, let me simply say that on the face of it, I think it is more natural to take those opening verses of Revelation 20, well, actually, the whole of, the whole of Revelation 20, it is really down to verse 15, as a vision of the church age. Um, more natural because in the middle of the vision you have uh, verses 4 and 5 what appears to be a clear account of the intermediate state as it's called for Christians that is folk who have died in the Lord and are awaiting the general resurrection now that makes perfectly good sense if you think that Revelation 20 verse 1 is the first coming of Christ and that what we are seeing is in fact an account of the church age but I think it presents a bit of a problem if you take any other view. Um, let me say in a sentence or two how I see the details. The angel, the angelos, who comes down from heaven in chapter 20 is in verse 1, is actually our Lord, viewed in his character as a messenger of God, which is what that word angelos means throughout the New Testament. And then there are different sorts of divine messengers. He binds the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan for a thousand years. That I link up with his own statement in the course of his ministry that he came to bind the strong man and having bound him to spoil his goods. Um, then you move to the picture of the martyrs in verses 4 and 5. We've already been told in many of the texts in Revelation up to this point that persecution is one of the constant factors in the church age. Folk do get martyred and the martyrs are Martyrs in Revelation are the emblem of all those faithful saints who live and die in loyalty to Christ, 
Never mind what pressure is put on them in their own lifetime. You don't actually have to have your life violently taken away to be a martyr. Uh, the martyr is simply the, pic is the picture of the person who stands, who stands faithful. But it's a, the, the book came out of a time of persecution, and so it's natural that the martyr figure is chosen to represent the faithful Christians who've resisted opposition as long as life lasted. And so in verse 4, you've got, them, you, you've got these souls presented as the souls of those who've been beheaded for their testimony to God and the word, to Jesus and for the word of God and who hadn't worshipped the beast and so, and so on and so forth. Nonetheless, it says, end of verse 4, they came to life, they lived again, they had a second life, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years, which I conceive to be a picture of the intermediate state for those who've shared in what Jesus himself in John chapter 5 refers to as present resurrection, entry into resurrection life here and now through faith in Christ and fellowship with Christ. And then you get the comment, verse 6, blessed and holy as he who shares in the first resurrection. Um, then verses 7 and onwards point to the final climactic conflict that there will be as evil grows to its um, supreme point of maturing alongside the growth of the kingdom of God and the work of God in this world towards its supreme point of maturing. Um, some of my post-millennial friends don't think that the last thing prior to the Lord's return will be climactic conflict between the Lord's people and the forces that oppose them. But it seems to me that verses 7 through 10 are really quite explicit on that. Then verse 10 points to the, uh, well, sorry, verses 9 and 10 point to what will happen so far as the forces of evil are concerned when Christ comes back. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. The devil who's deceived the world will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and that will be his final destination. Then, verses 11 through 15, the final judgment the great white throne. Now, interpreting Revelation that way, I don't honestly think that I'm eliminating the thousand years. I think I'm explaining them. This is an honorable exegesis, which at least uh, it goes back at least to Augustine and is still defended by such expositors as William Hendrickson, and I defend it myself. All right, Bob. In light of your eschatological viewpoint, then, how would you, how would you, uh, or how and when would the uh, unconditional covenants to Israel be fulfilled? In what, in what respect, uh, specifically the Palestinian and Davidic covenants? My principle for understanding Old Testament prophecy that relates to the future of Israel is not again peculiar to me, but it's a principle which has not, I think, had the elaborate exposition and the high exposure in our time that um, other ways of taking those passages have had. The principle, as I, the principle that I posit, that I think that the New Testament forces on me, as a matter of fact, is that prophecy is given in terms of the dispensation that uh, exists at the time of its giving but it's fulfilled in terms of the dispensation that succeeds that. In other words, Old Testament prophecy concerning the future of God's people Israel is given in terms of the partly typical Old Covenant setup, but it's fulfilled in terms of the anti-typical New Covenant setup. I see the people of God as a single people in history, the seed of Abram, not the genealogical seed at any stage in con as distinct from the believing seed. I think that even in Abram's own lifetime, in the case of his own two sons, the genealogical seed was shown not to be the seed of Abram to which the promise was made. Isaac was the heir of the promise, Ishmael wasn't. I see that principle going right the way through the Bible. And when I get to the New Testament, I think I see the writers taking pains to tell us that the hopes given 
by promise to Old Testament Israel are being fulfilled in the kingdom of Christ, which is the church. Now, that, I think, is a principle consistently followed through in the New Testament. And therefore, my answer to you directly is that in accordance with the New Testament lead, I construe all those promises as relating to the purpose of God in the Christian church, where Israel finds the fulfillment of, its, of the promises given to it, where Israel finds the fulfillment of all the hopes that God ever set before Israel. And I would just refer here to, the one, to one passage of many, um, Romans chapter 11, where you have one olive tree, the covenant community of which the patriarchs are the head, and Israel's destiny, having been broken off through, from the olive tree through unbelief at the time of Christ's first coming, is to be grafted back into the olive tree through national conversion. And that's what I look for. But I see only one people of God, just as I see only one covenant of God and one way of salvation, and I see uh, genealogical Israel, uh, the, the, the Jewish nation, as having all its hopes, um, all its future, centered in the Christian church. Are you saying that the covenants are redefined based on their contemporary setting then? I don't understand the question. Would you explain a bit more fully what you mean? Well, I'll say it again, and maybe I'm not... I I said, are you saying that the covenants are redefined based on their contemporary setting? I still don't understand. Um, Perhaps you're talking a language which isn't quite my theological language. Explain it. I from the original definition of how Mm -hmm. you saw that the, the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament, how covenants shifted historically. Oh, um... I think I, I think I see what you're asking me now. There is one covenant of grace made by God with Abram and fulfilled to all the believers that ever have been. It's a covenant which defines the basic relationship between God and his covenant people or his covenant persons as I am your God and will continue so. You are my person and must continue so. Um, it's a covenant, in other words, of complete mutual commitment both ways. A covenant of love, of loyalty, and of, uh, and of service. God serves us in blessing us. We serve God in worshipping in, in worshiping him and doing his will. That's what the covenant was for Abram. That's what the covenant is for all God's people today. But within that one covenant, I distinguish two distinct orders of things or dispensations whereby the blessings of the covenant relationship were actually mediated. There was the typical era of mediation first. That covers all the priesthood, sacrificial arrangements, uh, the temple, the, taber- the tabernacle, the temple, and all the mediatorial apparatus of the Old Testament order of things. That, so I learn from the letter to the Hebrews, is now a thing of the past because Christ has come and his mediation at every point fulfills, transcends, replaces and improves on the mediatorial arrangements, the temporary mediatorial arrangements that operated until he came. So now it's the heavenly tabernacle, the place of the Father's presence, and it's the one high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek who mediates all grace, and he is king as well as priest, that's part of the doctrine. He is, uh, he is prophet too, come to that, he's our teacher. Uh, he's the... Um, uh, he, he, he's he's, our, he's our, uh, our guide and our instructor, the mediator of all revelation, as well as the mediator of all grace and all divine rule. And uh, it's a better covenant founded on better promises simply in the sense that now more of the eternal blessing, which was always in store for those to whom God gave his covenant, that was in store for Abram, right from uh, the day that God made covenant with Abram, more of those blessings are given right now. And this links up with uh, 
themes that I guess you know are made much of in biblical theology these days, the eschatological significance of the gift of the Holy Spirit, or putting it in simple language for simple folk, the fact that the life of heaven starts here in terms of fellowship with the Father and the Son in the way that we shall be fellowshipping with the Father and the Son to all eternity. Well, through the mediation of Christ, more is being given to God's people right now here on earth than ever was given to God's people on earth in Old Testament times. But all that is within the frame of the one covenant relationship which basically remains unchanged. God says, I am your God, pledged to you. You are my people, committed to me. And the relationship goes on in a form for which... uh, Well, for which marriage, actually, the human relationship between husband and wife is the closest biblical analogue. And it's no accident from that standpoint that the church is the bride of Christ. Um, Am I making any sort of sense? All right, there was another one right here. Given uh, the great detail the book of Revelation uh, has and all the symbolism which derives from the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel... And then taking the book of Daniel itself and many of the Old Testament books and all the detail they have, um, what do we make of the purpose of all this detail? How do you see it? Detail in uh, apocalyptic passages, that is, uh, passages which are imaginatively projecting the future, is often there for no, um, no other purpose than to highlight and stress the importance of that which is essentially being pictured. Interpreting apocalyptic passages is often similar to interpreting parables. What you've got to do first and foremost is to find the one central thing that it's all about, the one central point that the vision is making, and then remember this... uh, The Bible is an Eastern book, and we know how the Eastern imagination works. We've got to remember then that the details are very often just imaginative trimmings, highlighting the picture, filling in the picture, making it vivid, making it stand out, making it dramatic, presenting it in glorious technicolor, and thereby giving us a sense, an enhanced sense, of the significance of the central thing that's being talked about. The grammar of biblical apocalyptic is another thing which modern biblical theologians have studied quite a bit. So then we can't build a chronology or anything? No, well, I don't think we can. I think that that's mishandling the material. Let me, let me give you one little bit of exegesis which, on which I'd like you to uh, chew. Either you'll agree with me or you won't. But if you don't, you'll have problems of your own, and I'll leave you with those problems. Um, I don't want to do this out of Revelation. Uh, I want to do it out of the second chapter of Acts, um, where I find one of the key passages for the viewpoint that uh, I'm presenting, I mean, one of the key passages that drive me to the viewpoint I'm presenting, actually, the passage where Peter quotes Joel, Joel chapter 2, and having quoted, look at verses 17 through 21 of uh, uh, Acts 2, having quoted actually uh, those five verses from, jo- from Joel, um, Peter, uh, or rather, sorry, not having quoted them, Peter says, This is that. He says it in verse 16 as his introduction. I'm sorry, I was misremembering. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and then he quotes those five verses, inviting you to agree that all that's in these verses is happening on the day of Pentecost. This is that. And you look and you see, it shall be in the last days, says God, I'll pour out my spirit, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall see dreams, on my men servants and maid servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Well, you might say, what's said there in verses 17 and 18 Um, can all be related to what was actually happening that moment in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost at uh, whatever time it was now, half past nine in the morning perhaps. But then look what goes on in verses 19 and 20. I'll show wonders in heaven above, signs on the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and manifest day. 
And Peter is saying, saying, this that's happening today is that too. Well, now, how do you construe that? There are only two options. Either you say, well, Peter was quoting in a very loose and formally incorrect way, and he would have been clearer if he hadn't actually cited those two verses. Or else you say, Peter understood the linguistic conventions, the grammar, the style of apocalyptic. Joel 2 is a vision which is presented in apocalyptic form. And he und- Peter understands that these details are symbolic elaboration making this point that what is happening when God pours out his spirit in the last days is something which changes the whole of the world. The whole of the world will never be the same again. And that's what's being said by wonders in heaven, signs on the earth, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, sun turned into darkness, and so on. Uh, You can see which of the two views I take. Um, You may not agree with me, but this is uh, a sample of how I think that a lot of the detailed stuff in apocalyptic visions ought to be taken. And, of course, I do have to concede that... um, If you take this line, you cannot but think that some of the attempts to establish relative date charts and time intervals and so on on the basis of books like Daniel or Revelation were misconceived. They've just misunderstood the linguistic conventions of the material being dealt with. Well, either you agree or you don't, but uh, that's them's my sentiments. All the questions are over here. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are there any over here? Okay. Some more? One problem I, I appreciate you saying that because I have little difficulties with that passage too. But one problem that I immediately comes to my mind is if you take that approach, then you could say that uh, Jesus coming into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey and so forth, some of those, and being born of a virgin, as prophesied in the Old Testament, um, wouldn't could be details that um, wouldn't oh, have to be there. Oh, brother, no. Speaking to the point itself, literary genre has to be determined by inspection of the passage. What you mustn't do is to impose on any passage a literary genre which it doesn't appear to have from the way in which it's actually set out. Now, what I've said about uh, what I believe to be true concerning detail elaboration, symbolic elaboration in apocalyptic, is based on inspection of the passages, and uh, it has no other base at all. I'm not trying to evade anything. I'm just trying to see how this kind of language works. And similarly, with passages which prima facie are historical. I read Matthew chapter 2. I read Matthew chapter, is it 19 or 20, which tells of the, uh, the triumph, or 20, I can't remember which it is, which tells of the triumphal entry. Uh, and it seems evident to me as I read and reread them that Matthew intends us to, to read all this as history. Um, there's nothing in the manner of the telling to suggest that this is uh, a fancy story told for the sake of, a mor- sake of, its sake of the moral. Uh, in other words, Midrash according to the Gundry definition of Midrash, which I think is a mistaken definition. Um, I brought Gundry in, actually, not just to be contentious, but because I think that his position does make a useful reference point for defining and distinguishing my own, which is different. He thinks the essence of Midrash is that it's it's a story told for the sake of the moral, and and provided the moral is there, it doesn't matter to anybody and shouldn't matter to us whether it's a true story or not. And I don't think that Midrash in Judaism actually had that character. And I certainly don't think that those two stories in Matthew's Gospel are told as having that character. They are told as history. And it's, uh, I have no right, no one has any right, to treat what Bible writers present as history as if it were not history but something else. Um, an imaginative narrative told for the sake of uh, an edifying meaning. But in, each, in every case, you've got to judge by the literary character of the material. A genre judgment is an a posteriori judgment. 
and you must be led by what you what sort of material um, you find you find it to be. It's a literary judgment. There are difficult passages I know in Scripture, not very many of them, but a few passages where it's uncertain what, from a literary standpoint, what kind of material you're dealing with. Let me give a hostage to fortune in order to illustrate and say that I think Genesis one is one such passage. Um, where the basic difference of judgment, which leads to it being expounded in different ways by different, sp- different people, is a literary judgment about what sort of written material this is. But in the case of those two stories from the Gospel, I really don't think there's any doubt. And uh, therefore, I, I, I don't acknowledge that by taking the line I do about apocalyptic, which is a posteriori, Um, I may have got it wrong, but at least it's a posteriori procedurally. Um, uh, It's by an a posteriori method of reasoning, I mean, that uh, I reach this conclusion. Um, I don't um, open the door to any sort of arbitrariness in dealing with any other biblical material. Um, Arbitrariness, I mean, in not taking its own literary character quite seriously. All right? Yes. You, you said that in Revelation, since it is apocalyptic, the main, the, the interpretation of the book has to come from the main point of it, or the main thrust of it. What would you see that to be in the book of Revelation? Essentially, it's a proclamation in the visionary chapters, this is chapter 4 through to the end, of the coming triumph of Jesus Christ, which has already been hinted at very broadly by the initial vision of the Lord in glory in chapter 1 and the thrust of the messages to the seven churches where in each case the Lord represents himself as the one who has overcome and will record those, will reward, I'm sorry, those who in his strength overcome whatever pressure is put upon them. And then one launches, as I think, into a series of visions. I think there are a number of parallel visions um, for between chapters 4 and 22, visions all of which are telling the same story, namely that between Christ's first coming and his final appearing, there will be conflict and opposition in many different ways to God's people, God's cause, God's kingdom, and God's church, but the Lord is going to win in the end. Um, It's the triumph of Christ in power over the chaos of sin in a fallen world that's being projected, presented, um, exhibited for our encouragement uh, throughout the book. And that's really its unifying theme as I see it. Again, I think that's a posteriori. I mean, I think that's what comes across if you read the book six times without stopping and let it make its own impact on you. This side just came alive. Bob. Wonderful. I particularly yes, appreciate the statement you made about the everlastingness uh, of eternity and wonder if there's any particular insight you have about eternity. Um, I know the scripture doesn't address it, at least as I see it, but I wonder if you have any particular insight about the after the Lord comes. Um. Here, I'm in the same boat as everybody else. I have to guess, because uh, though I have glorious pictures of what will be involved in Scripture, they are pictures, and pictures of an experience that is to be, and I really don't know what it will be like to live moment by moment in a resurrection body. I only know what it's like to live in this present body, this thing. My experience of time, I'm sure, is conditioned in a very decisive way by the rhythms and operations of this physical body. And I'm sure that in eternity it will be different. So I have to be very cautious and tentative in what I say here. But as a preacher, I do try to give folks some uh, positive notion of eternity by what I hope is biblically guided extrapolations from the present life. And the sort of thing that I feel free to say, though remember it is tentative, is first, that the endlessness of supreme delight 
is going to be right at the center of the eternal experience. Christ comes, takes his people to be with him. At the end of Revelation chapter 7, you've got that vision of uh, the Lord in the midst of the throne being their shepherd. He guides them to streams, uh, what's it, fountains of water, um, wipes away all tears from their eyes. They hunger no more. They don't thirst anymore. All that ever was painful has become a thing of the past. Only delightfulness and fulfillment of one sort and another operate in this continuous present. I mean, continuous in the sense that well, now look, this, this, this actually is a very weighty thought, I think. It's continuous in the sense that um, uh, in our most delightful moments in this world, we often find ourselves saying in our hearts, I wish this would never stop. We know it's going to. Uh, it can only last a short time and then it will stop. But in heaven, uh, our thought will be, I wish this would never stop. And our knowledge will be, no, indeed, it never will stop. And that, I think, will be part of the joyfulness of our joy. All painful and frustrating things removed. All the delights of uh, closest intimacy with the Father and the Son maximized. Um, There, I think, we have to extrapolate from our closest and sweetest experiences of friendship. Uh, relationships, I mean, which are their own end. Uh, My friendship with my closest friends is not a means to an ulterior end any more than uh, my marrying my wife was a means to an ulterior end. I didn't want her money, that was all right, because in fact she hadn't got any. I wanted her, and I still do. And the relationship is its own purpose. Well, We've all of us had relationships like that. We have them now. Um, In glory, our relationship with the Father and the Son will fulfill all the delights of that sort of relationship. Um, One of the glorious things about God, God the Father and God the Son, and no, no, by the way, I I don't find this sort of talk uh, in Scripture concerning the Spirit. I only find it concerning the Father and the Son, therefore I limit it to the Father and the Son. I'm not a Binitarian, I am a Trinitarian, but I think the formula in eternity um, will be the formula that it is in time, fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And now what I'm saying is that fellowship with the Father and the Son will go on as friendships do with uh, increasing richness, more and more coming to you within the relationship and out of the relationship. Um, Relations of friendship don't stand still. Um, uh, I I say, one thinks of marriage. A lot of you are married. You think of your marriage. The relation doesn't stand still. It gets richer as the years go by. And all our closest friendships do the same. One of the glorious things about God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, this is what I was going to say a moment ago, is that being God, the Father and the Son can make themselves fully present with and give their undivided attention to each one of the billions, literally billions, of redeemed folk who will be there in glory. That's no new truth, actually. The Lord does it here and now. Every single one of us in this room is the object of our Lord's undivided attention. And uh, so is every other Christian alive on the face of the earth. And so is every Christian who's gone before us. I say there'll be billions in glory. And we all of us will have the undivided attention and affection of the Father and the Son. Uh, Well, you see, this is what it means to be loved by deity. This is one of the things for which there's no parallel in human experience, but then the Father and the Son are divine. These are the sort of things that I say to try and make the thought of eternity vivid. There'll be growth, I'm sure, because human life isn't really human unless you're advancing. There'll be service, I'm sure, because human life isn't truly human unless there's work and creative things to do. It's so in this world, it will be so in glory, and so one might go on. But this is all guesswork, really, and I'm sure that everything that uh, I have said is far inferior to the glory that will be, Mm. and we shall all have some marvellous surprises when we get there. Let's try to get these three 
brief questions in. Mike. Okay. Dr. Packer, I want to uh, thank you for your book, uh, um, Knowing God. It was a real watershed uh, book in my, my life in terms of uh, the sovereignty of God and my responsibility. So I personally thank you for that. Uh, my question, though, I was recently accused of being a covenant theologian, and if that's true, I'm sorry, Dr. Rodmacher. <laughs> but uh, he based that on the, on the fact that I saw a, a real continuity between Israel and the Church of God as the seed of Abraham. But I also see um, some differences. Uh, when I look at uh, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and the Abrahamic promises, I see that that these promises are, are Israel-bound, are earth-bound in terms of land promises, especially as they're related in Deuteronomy 30 to the Palestinian uh, covenant, that, uh, that these promises are to Israel and to land. My question then is, what does this stop me when I look at, at Revelations, just as you, and see the triumph of God, the triumph of Christ, which I do see, and I totally agree with you there, but I also see that it's a triumph that's earth-bound. A triumph that's that's in time and a triumph that's in history and on this earth. Um, it seems to me that I look at, at the Old Testament, the Old Testament promises to Israel, and I see those realized in Revelation regarding Israel and regarding this earth and in time. What's to stop me from seeing that that way? If you see it, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> but, <coughs> but I have to tell you, I don't see it. Um, those promises relating to the land ought, I think, to be construed in New Testament terms by the light of uh, what's said in a passage like Hebrews uh, eleven fourteen through 16. Uh, the patriarchs make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. I think that the promise of land and uh, uh, a status, therefore, as one of the nations, geographically and as well as ethnically defined among the nations of the world, um, people who live in a particular place, uh, made to Israel in the Old Testament, that in itself is part, one of the typical features of the Old Testament order of things. And here you have the clue to the antitypical fulfillment of those promises in terms of the heavenly country in which we shall all of us end up and to which all of us are being led. And believing that, I read Revelation and I don't find in it what, uh, it, seems, what, what, what from, it seems from what you say that you have found. All right, Jim. In Revelation again, we've got one through four, we, we seem to have a very literal picture of the churches mm -hmm. throughout uh, Asia. Oh yes, there were seven real churches. And then right. after chapter 4, it seems that we go into a, a whole different type of, of literary genre where the church isn't mentioned at all. And I'm asking, how do we, how do we run the church all the way through where, where in 1 through 4 we've got specific references to the church, and then after that, specific references to Israel? Well, again, I'm puzzled because I don't find that in Revelation 4 through 22 at all. What I find is references to the people of God. Certainly the imagery in which they're spoken of is imagery taken from the Old Testament. From my standpoint, that's to be expected because what's being proclaimed in uh, Revelation is the conflict in which the hopes of Israel are finally threatened and finally fulfilled. You see, fulfilled through the triumph of Christ. But I think that all the references to the witnesses and the 144,000 and the multitude of uh, praising people whom no man could number and uh, the saints, all those are references to, at least they're meant to be understood as references to the Lord's people under the New Covenant dispensation. Christians, in other words, the Christians who are the church. Uh, that's the short answer. It would take a long time to go further than that, so I'll stop there. And one last question. Uh, back to your uh, exegesis of, in Acts and uh, saying how details in apocalyptic literature are technicolor and all that. Mm -hmm. Then I went back and looked at Matthew in his reference yeah. to uh, the virgin and all that. Mm -hmm. 
isn't uh, Matthew doing the same thing as Peter was? Because he, after the the narrative saying uh, uh, he will be born of a virgin, etc., then he says this is to fulfill the prophecy, and then he quotes Isaiah. Uh, how do we distinguish what's technicolor and and isn't Matthew doing the same thing as, as Peter was doing? On my view, not quite the same, but uh, I, have to, I have to take a line in answering your question, a line in the exegesis of that passage with which some of you may not agree. I don't think, you see, that you can get out of the Hebrew of uh, Isaiah 7 the thought of a specifically virgin birth. There are evangelical expositors who think you can, um, I agree that it's possible that um, a young woman being with child will be a virgin, but I think you have to read that into Isaiah 7 and you can't read it out. And that's where, as I say, I take a line which, with which you may not agree. I think, therefore, that when Matthew proclaims this was to fulfill the Isaiah 7 prophecy, his point is not that the virgin birth, qua virgin birth, fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. His point is that this birth, the birth of the Messiah, which was as a matter of fact a virgin birth, as uh, Matthew has just been explaining, this is the fulfillment, that is the final fulfillment, because again I take a line which some do and some don't, I think that Old Testament prophecies do have more than one fulfillment. Um, But this is the final fulfillment of the promise that that, uh, a young woman will bring forth a child whose appearing will mark the overthrow of earthly kingdoms and the setting up of a kingdom in which he and he alone is Lord. Now, you may or may not agree with that, but that's what I think Matthew wants us to understand from what he's saying. And if if I'm right, um, it isn't quite the same as apocalyptic uh, technicolor detail um, in Acts chapter 2, but it's something else. But there, I've taken a line on questions where I know I have to argue the case because there's an opposite case, uh, which many, maybe maybe many of you, and certainly many evangelical expositors embrace. I am in a minority, I think, in reading Matthew chapter 1 quite this way. Dr. Packer, you have uh, spontaneously covered a broad swath of uh, truth and we appreciate your willingness to do that that's to be put in a difficult situation and my commendation to the class as well for the way you have handled this time and your uh, questions that you have asked I think they've given a good opportunity to Dr. Packer to express in living color a particular viewpoint and I believe that we always benefit by hearing how another A person of integrity is seeing the same scripture that we're looking at. For we shall be better off by listening to one another in our viewpoints. And we appreciate your willingness to do that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Redmacher.